0: Hello and welcome to another podcast for US History Repeated. Today we will continue with our coverage of the Progressive Era and focus on child labor and the child labor laws that evolved from that time as well as education. We will also discuss some hot topics related to education and challenges that face educators today. But before I turn it over to Jeanan, I want to talk up our friends at sweatsido.com, your place for velour tracksuits and especially any custom velour tracksuit needs that you may have. Take a look at their site. They are fabulous. I have one, and people are always remarking. It's a heck of a conversation piece. But go to the website. Each one of these are named. You have the Uncle Tony, the Uncle Larry. A friend of mine actually just bought the Uncle Larry. So go to Sweatsito.com. Use promo code HISTORY10. That's lowercase history and the number 10 for 10% off your very own Sweatsito. And let the adventure begin. And now, Jeannie, take it away.
1: All right, so picking up where we left off with the progressive era, I think today we'll start with child labor. Child labor in the United States has a long history and still exists in many places around the globe. Child labor existed throughout the country. It's certainly hard to picture today, but if we were to travel back in time and suddenly find ourselves in a New England mill in the mid-1800s, or on a family-owned farm, it would be commonplace to see young children doing work that most, uh, you know, most adults would find difficult today. Conditions were such that once a child was physically able to work, they were expected to contribute to the success of the family farm, or they were hired out to another family who had more work, or they labored in a factory with machines that were deemed simple to use. They were newspaper boys, messengers. They shined the shoes of the wealthy. They worked in shops. They took care of younger children while both parents were at work. For enslaved children, they are working alongside their parents for no pay, right? In northern factories, In homes where goods are produced, we see child labor, but child labor was more prevalent in southern cotton mills. And, you know, the state of Pennsylvania, for example, had one of the highest numbers of child laborers in the country. To understand, you know, how prevalent it was, one only has to look at U.S. Census records. In the 1870 census, one out of every eight children was employed. By 1900, that number rose to one in five children. Conditions were such that children had to work in order to make ends meet. You have stories of children as young as five, you know, dying in factories. And the stories would make headlines, but, you know, not in the way that you would think. The reaction was more, well, you know, let's try to make things safer, not why are five-year-olds working in a factory? You know, that factory needs to be shut down and those children should be in school. That did not happen, at least, you know, not right away. By the late 1800s, you have some states who are passing minimum age laws. Others passed, you know, maximum working hours, which in some states was 10 hours a day, you have stories of children being beaten by their boss for not working fast enough or for coming to, you know, to work late. You know Those instances were common. A man by the name of Edgar Gardner Murphy was the founder of the National Child Labor Committee. It was created in 1904. They hoped to get states to pass minimum age laws. It was 14 for some industries and 16 for the more dangerous ones like mining. They also wanted an eight hour workday. The National Child Labor Committee hired a former teacher and sociologist named Louis Hine. And he traveled throughout the country and at times even undercover taking photographs of children working in different industries and various settings. Investigators from the NCLC, which is the National Child Labor Committee, they worked to gather evidence of children working in harsh conditions and then organized exhibitions with photographs and statistics to paint an accurate picture of child labor in the United States. A woman... By the name of Mary Harris Jones, who was known as Mother Jones, worked tirelessly to end child labor, a woman who suffered unimaginable loss in today's standards. But sadly for her time, it was common, that type of loss. Her husband and all four of her children died from yellow fever. You know, that's the kind of loss that one really can't wrap their mind around. She led a march of child workers who had been injured in all sorts of ways, missing hands, fingers, you name it. And they marched from Pennsylvania to President Theodore Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, New York. And President Roosevelt refused to see them. President Roosevelt didn't think a federal law restricting child labor was constitutional. Instead, he felt that power belonged to individual states. During the next administration, the Children's Bureau was signed into law by President Taft in 1912, and the Bureau still exists today. When it was first created, the Bureau, of course, dealt with issues like child labor, but also high infant mortality rates, the improvement of conditions of orphans, with the creation of child welfare agencies and the creation of juvenile courts, you know, orphans living in overcrowded cities were often transported by trains to, you know, a variety of locations in the Midwest, either for them to work or to be adopted by families. Today, the Children's Bureau is responsible for ensuring the safety and the welfare of children in the United States. The Keating-Owen Bill was passed in 1916, and the law prohibited the sale of you know, in regards to interstate commerce, it prohibited the sale of goods produced by factories that employ children under the age of 14 in products from mines that employ children younger than 16 and any facility where children under the age of 14 worked after 7 p.m. or before 8 a.m. or for more than eight hours daily. But that law was found unconstitutional nine months after it was passed because the court felt that Congress didn't have the power to regulate working conditions. It will not be until 1938 when the first Fair Labor Standards Act will be passed and that set a minimum wage, maximum working hours, and a minimum age of 16 except in hazardous jobs where the age was 18. Now, you can't talk about working conditions without talking about labor unions. Labor unions also worked to improve conditions for workers. Factories were dirty and dark. You know, workers sometimes got hurt on the job and their wages were low. Labor unions supported child labor laws because they drew down wages, right? not because it was wrong for children to work, but because children were in the workforce, you know, men were paid less and women were paid less than men and children were the cheapest form of labor along with immigrants. So there's a couple of labor unions that we should talk about. You have labor unions who are looking to have an eight-hour workday, eight hours for work, eight hours for leisure, eight hours for sleep. So the first group I want to talk about is the Knights of Labor, and they began in 1869, and they started off as a group of tailors. Over time, the union grew to include skilled workers in a number of different industries. You know, think of it as a union of unions. There were only a few groups that weren't allowed to join in. A man by the name of Terence Powderly took over in 1881 and allowed women to join the union as well. The Knights of Labor supported an eight-hour workday, and they hoped to improve conditions in the workplace. They organized a number of successful strikes within the railroad industry. Another group is the American Federation of Labor, and that was created in 1886 and was led by a man by the name of Samuel Gompers. He was a member of a cigar makers union, and he served as its president until his death. They hoped to obtain shorter hours, higher wages, better working conditions. The AFL still exists today. It is known as the AFL-CIO and still champions the rights of workers. Another important group is the IWW, and this stands for Industrial Workers of the World, and it was created out of the need and want for better working conditions. Many workers, especially in the West, began to gravitate towards socialism. In 1905, leaders of the Western Federation of Miners, or the WFM, you know members of the socialist party and other groups met in chicago and founded the iww they believed that workers of the world needed to unite to grab hold of the means of production and abolish the wage system they believed that groups like the afl were too conservative they supported the use of strikes or even sabotage if it would further cause if it would further their cause you know, they were known for their many famous labor anthems. You know, probably the most famous is Solidarity Forever, which is sung to the same tune as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Their motto was, an injury to one is an injury to all. And members of the IWW were known as Wobblies. During World War One and the first Red Scare in the United States during the 1920s, the United States government went after the IWW. The group still, you know, the group experienced a bit of a resurgence during the civil rights era and they actually still exist today. During the progressive era, not only are we looking at the ills of child labor and trying to prove, you know, and trying to improve the conditions of workers, we are also looking to improve education. The progressive education movement you know, roughly from 1896 to 1916. Progressive education aimed to make schools more effective agencies of a democratic society. Now, what do I mean by that? It was the idea that schools needed to be able to shape individuals to be active participants in all facets of life schools can't just be teaching the basics of reading, writing, arithmetic. That individuals needed to be given the tools to make decisions in regards to social, political, and economic aspects of their life. You know, if you think back to what was taught in ancient Greece, specifically in the city-state of Athens, education and democracy went hand in hand. In the United States, after 1910, you even see smaller cities throughout the country, you know, begin building high schools. By 1940, 50% of young adults had earned a high school diploma. Fewer progressive reformers were as important to the movement as John Dewey. You know, Dewey taught at both University of Chicago and at Teachers College at Columbia University. He believed schools had a dual purpose, a place for people to not just simply acquire necessary knowledge, but to hone in on each person's strengths and interests so that they could then go and use their talents to help build up society. He also believed that schools should be a place that taught people how to be good citizens, how to live. In some of John Dewey's works, such as the school and society, the child and the curriculum, schools of tomorrow, uh, and democracy and education. And through numerous lectures and articles, he discussed how schools could be improved. And in 1919, the Progressive Education Association was founded, and that association aimed at reforming the entire school system of America. Another important progressive era reformer in regards to education that we should discuss is Colonel Francis W. Parker. He was a Civil War veteran who, with the help of benefactors, established a school in Chicago. When the Civil War ended and he resumed his teaching career, he also actually had the opportunity to travel to Germany and learn new philosophies and teaching styles that were being taught there. And he brought those new ideas back with him. John Dewey called him the father of progressive education. He believed it was important to provide students with opportunities to learn through real experiences with the world rather than only by, you know, rote memorization, saying things over and over again or writing things over and over again. He spoke out against harsh punishments from teachers. And, you know, this is a time where students could and would be hit by their teacher for a variety of infractions. The idea that children learn best when they are given hands-on opportunities to learn. The idea that children learn best when they are encouraged to study and read about topics they enjoy. The information being taught should be engaging and interesting. These were all radical ideas at the start of the 20th century. You know, he started the school. In 1901, and it started out with 144 students. And the Francis W. Parker School still exists exists today. And if you go to their website, their mission is rooted in Parker's beliefs. And this is a direct quote from their website. It says, Francis W. Parker School educates students to think and act with empathy, courage, and clarity as responsible citizens and leaders in a diverse democratic society and global community. You know, that was not something that's that was not the mantra of most schools, right? During the progressive era, education was becoming something that only a small privileged number in society had access to. Vocational training was preferred for the masses. And if you think about it, if you are coming from a lower socioeconomic status, You don't have the means to go to school. You don't have the means to be privately tutored. You don't have the means to go to college. You are going into the workforce. Maybe you are lucky enough to be an apprentice of sorts, you know, and learn a trade. But you need to start working and make money as soon as possible. You know, our grandfather was born in 1909. He was one of 18 children. 11 survived to adulthood. When his father died, he and his older brother had to go to work. You know, he was lucky in that he got to finish high school, but his older brother wasn't that lucky. You know, most people in the early 1900s had as much schooling as was necessary for them to be productive in society. If you are the poor or lower middle class, the opportunities for schooling and how long you could remain in school were far less than your middle class, upper middle class, or wealthier families. Education is you know, one of those fields where it's not a typical business. You are dealing with people. Every child that is in a teacher's classroom is different and is unique. There are different learning styles. There are different levels of ability. There are different emotional needs. You have a child who lives in poverty, maybe a child who's homeless. They have different needs. There are things that are more important to them, like where are they going to sleep? Will they have a meal tonight? Over the weekend, will they be able to eat? You think You know, you think they can focus on whatever math or science topic is being discussed. You have a child who is abused at home, whether that's physical, emotional or sexual uh, sexual abuse. You have a child where a parent has lost a job and they are working after school or have to pick up or take care of younger siblings or are missing days of school because they have to stay home and watch that younger sibling so that parent can work. You have a child who comes home and no one is there until late at night. What people who have never taught don't understand is that there are children in classrooms that are dealing with things every day that would make most full grown adults crumble. That is a fact. You know, look at the last two years, children across the globe have not had a normal school experience with the pandemic. You know, I was speaking to a friend of mine whose daughter is the same age as my youngest, and they don't know school without having to wear a mask. On the first day, her daughter didn't have to wear a mask. She said, Mom, you mean my teacher will be able to see my smile today and I can see hers? You know, this is a child who never... Voiced opposition to wearing a mask, but look at what she was thinking about. You know, teachers are teaching content, but they're also caregivers. You know, every once in a while, you'll see this feel good story on the news or making its rounds on social media of the teacher who does a child's hair in the morning, or the story of a coach who pays for prom tickets you know, the stories of teachers who have snacks in their classroom and have a policy of take what you need or want. Those stories are far more common than most people realize. You know, teachers are providing emotional support. They are providing guidance. They are people with whom children are building connections with. You know, years after I've taught, someone. I still get letters from former students of mine, you know, telling me that I or my class was some of their favorite high school memories. And there's no better compliment. You know, teaching is one of those fields where you have the opportunity to make a difference every single day. Education is also a field where people who have no experience in teaching have a lot to say or who want to dictate how the teaching is done. Things are constantly changing and the demands placed on most educators are unrealistic. Look at some of the bills that are being proposed in some states currently. You have some states who are looking to ban books. You have some states who are looking to mandate that educators post all of the lesson plans they will use in the next school year online. In no other industry would this ever happen.
0: Hey, question for you. You said before that a lot of teachers, or they were tr- trying to mandate teachers having to post their curriculum or their pl- their lesson plans, rather, for the next you know year in advance. Do you think some of that comes from people wary or skeptical of teachers sharing political views in the classroom or indoctrinating students before the students are ready to hear the information or process the information?
1: You know, it, it could be. You know, my background as a history teacher, I had strong feelings on topics, but I kept it out of my classroom. I I was very aware of wanting to tell the full story. I was very aware of the opinions that the children in my class had. You know, when you are presenting certain topics, kids have very strong opinions. Now, where are they getting those opinions from, you know, parents are their child's first and really most important teacher. So they're coming in with preconceived notions, they're coming in with opinions and that's great because it it allowed for a really rich and full class discussion. I would never give my opinion. If it was asked for, I would give it. I would discuss it, but I would always play devil's advocate. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask the kids at the end of the year it was an extra credit uh question on my final exam and I would ask the kids you know what political party do you think I'm affiliated with and the kids would tell me like it was you know an open response they would have to write a letter because that was my way of kind of and everybody got credit for it as long as they backed up their opinion with examples or fact and I would never give them the real answer it's none of their business but It was always so interesting to me, the variety of answers. There are some kids, they would say, well, some days I thought you were this, but then other days I would think you were the opposite. So it was hard for me to tell. That was my way of gauging that I was being to the middle, right? That I wasn't persuading them one way or another. And believe me, the idea of You know, being able to make them all my little minions and get them thinking the way I was thinking was very attractive, but I never did it. And you have to be careful. I also think you have to be careful of anybody who wants to ban a book. Why don't they want you reading it? You know, what is it about that book that is so dangerous? You know, any look at the list of books that have been banned. Read them. Read them for yourself. If you don't like it, don't read it again. You know, if something isn't your cup of tea, which I don't really like that saying, but it it applies here. If it's not your cup of tea, guess what? It's not your cup of tea. Maybe I'm not your cup of tea. You can't win them all. But you have to go to the middle. You have to tell the full story. You know, I remember in school, I never, I never had a teacher who mentioned George Washington was a slave owner. It was kind of glazed over, but it wasn't discussed. You need to discuss it. You need to it doesn't negate the great things that they did, but you can't paint a full picture of somebody without telling the full story. And while you mention that, I also wanna say, you know, if teachers are kind of forced to put all their lesson plans online for whatever reason, what you're gonna have happen is you'll have like the standardization of lessons, which maybe in some cases might be good. Maybe they're taking, you know, some of the really strongest teachers and their and their work and and putting it in and sharing amongst teachers is important. I shared lesson plans, I had teachers share lesson plans with me, and I was a better teacher for it. But one of the greatest things in my opinion, especially with with teaching history, which is what I taught, I had the opportunity to be really creative and I would have an idea of how to teach a topic or a lesson. And that idea would come to life in five different ways because the children in my class were all so different. So, you know, the questions that they asked and the discussion that would occur as a result of their questions and their debates with each other, you know, made for a very different lesson. And, you know, if if you're taking that creativity out of it, I think the only people that are going to get hurt are the students, you know, because... Every teacher has a different way of teaching. You know, my lesson plans worked for me. The things that I was able to do in a classroom as a result of my years of experience or my classroom management were very different from what a new teacher might be able to do. Um, So you have to be careful with that, you know, and and are, are parents really going to look at all of those lessons? My thing is, I would highly doubt it. Um, you know, I had a few parents who were interested in what was happening, but I mean nobody ever asked to see my lessons or anything.
0: Perhaps the ones that are going to be looking at it are the ones that are looking for something to find fault with.
1: I mean, maybe. I mean, you can find fault with anything if you look hard enough. Sure. So, I mean, it's a slippery slope. I think you have to be careful of that. I mean, imagine an industry where you're where a manager is asking his employees. You know, to log in, everything that you're going to do every day for that month.
0: Listen, that happens in in business every week. You have CRM systems where people have to put in who they're talking to, who they're meeting with, what they're covering, what they're presenting. That happens in sales all the time.
1: How is that information used?
0: It's used as a management tool to make sure the activity is good for the the salespeople, because a lot of times salespeople in general are not really in the office or you want to monitor their activity. If they're responsible to bring in revenue, you want to make sure they're doing what they have to do. And then plus if someone leaves, someone else can take over. There there's there's a reason for all the documentation as for for a business reason. And this happens in other areas too. People log what they're doing as far as their activities in operational capacities in business. It happens it happens all the time. It's you know you want your boss to be able to see or the boss wants to be able to see what people are doing because they're getting they're getting compensated. This is this is probably one of the problems with people wanting to work from home is that there's not as much oversight as business owners used to have. Me being a business owner, I've I've been having people work from home since 2017. Before it was the cool thing to do. I don't care when things get done. I just want them to get done, and they want them to get done properly. And I trust my team, and I'm able to check and make sure everything is being done.
1: Well, teachers, you know, have something similar too. You know, teachers will have to give in their lesson plan books to the their, you know, administrator, and and their administrators are looking to see what's being taught, when it's being taught, how much time is being spent, and teachers are kind of given guidelines. You know, there are a calendar of lessons. There's topics that you have to complete by a certain time. Um, so that's already being done. Education is also not properly funded. Go to GoFundMe or donors choose, and take a look at what teachers across the country are hoping to raise money for, you know, to buy supplies for their classrooms or for their students to make them more successful. Imagine for a minute a doctor having to do the same to fund the hospital's operating rooms. You wouldn't see it. The needs of schools and the children they educate are constantly changing. You know, the work that John Dewey and other progressive reformers started over 100 years ago is still of the utmost importance. The changes that progressive reformers hoped to make started to scratch the surface of the social problems within society. We are still in need of muckrakers. We are still in need of people rolling up their sleeves and doing the hard work.
0: And let me tell you, I appreciate how much hard work is involved with teaching. I see what prep is involved in just doing this podcast, and you only need to keep my attention. Eh, I'm just kidding. There are people out there that listen to us too, so you have to engage with them. But we will continue with the progressive era and work into the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration, in part three of our progressive era, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.